up a world in turmoil and who do we send out to wave our flag? Boris Johnson. We'll ask how much more damage the Foreign Secretary can do. Plus, is there anyone who isn't secretly planning to launch a new political party? And guess which one selected a candidate who's already publicly expressed their hatred for the town they want to represent? Yeah, I know, it could actually be any of them. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Now, hands up who wasn't surprised when Theresa May, nearly two years ago now, decided to make Boris Johnson her foreign secretary. For all of his grandiose classical references, Bojo doesn't really strike you as the model of diplomatic restraint. And the thing about being foreign secretary is it's a really important job. Just look at the last couple of weeks, not least the crisis in Syria, which we'll get to in just a moment. Before those awful pictures emerged last weekend from Duma, Boris was already on the ropes over the way he'd handled the poisoning in Salisbury. To use the kind of phrase he would probably appreciate, he somewhat over-egged the pudding when he allowed a German television reporter to believe that the military research lab at Porton Down had not just identified the nerve agent used in Salisbury, but had definitively confirmed that it came from Russia. That's definitely not what scientists are there to do. Now, Boris probably didn't mean to blunder into that hole. But that's the thing about Boris. He never does mean to stumble around saying stupid things, but he somehow finds it irresistible. Robert Meekin joins me as ever. Robert, this portent down thing seemed to come from this continuing problem that Boris has with moderating his words, sticking to his brief and recognising the times when you need to adopt a certain seriousness or credibility. They are not things you readily associate with Boris Johnson, nor as diplomacy, nor as hard work. These are all the kind of skills that you need in a foreign secretary. Yeah, I mean, for for all the, the jokes about Boris and indeed the caricature that he's he himself has encouraged over the years. I, I think it's right to say that Boris also has a great deal of intellectual prowess. The problem is that isn't always evident when it comes to his very important political brief, i.e. currently being our foreign secretary. Uh, the recent gaffes, again, just reinforce the belief that uh, he's a man, however clever, who is also intellectually lazy, is incapable, frankly, of just keeping on top of his brief, is prone to meander off in all manner of directions, which ends up embarrassing the government. And yeah, at a, at a time like this, Boris not only ends up playing into the hands of the government's political enemies domestically, but far more importantly, he plays into the hands of our enemies overseas. This is what's particularly infuriating about the, the handling of Porton Down and Salisbury is that the case for Russia being the source of this seems to be pretty strong. You know, we haven't seen the intelligence. Very few people have seen the intelligence. But it was convincing enough for dozens upon dozens of countries to kick out Russian diplomats. Yet, by overstating the case in this faintly idiotic way that Boris Johnson did, he provides just enough of a hook for every tinfoil hat-wearing lunatic to hang a conspiracy theory off it that it somehow wasn't Russia when it pretty clearly was Russia. So suddenly we have people telling us that Jeremy Corbyn is a visionary genius who, in his reticence to blame Russia for this, had spotted the flaws in this argument before anybody else. Then Boris has the cheek to call Corbyn 
the Kremlin's useful idiot when it's his own stupid actions that have lent credibility to those crackpot theories in the first place. If that were true, Corbyn would at least be of some use to somebody. Boris Johnson's just blundering around as Westminster's useless idiot. Yeah, and I mean, it's typical Boris. As soon as he's cornered, he does lash out. He always um, puts a foot forward. That's the that's the nature of the beast. It has rather saved Jeremy Corbyn's blushes. And I think uh, in recent days, I mean, Corbyn's performance, although, of course, his ardent supporters would, would fiercely disagree with me, his performance was uncertain and inconsistent and frankly looked weak. He's now been able, as you say, to take some sort of imaginary moral high ground by saying, you see, the reason I was I was standing back the way I was was because I wasn't going to make the most a ridiculous mistake like our foreign secretary was. I mean, I think, I mean, Theresa May, of course, must just be tearing her hair out because for all the criticism she has received, particularly since the last general election, I think I think she's handled this crisis particularly well. She's played a, a straight bat. She's looked calm. She's looked steely and authoritative. I don't think she's really put a foot wrong. But then when her right-hand man is blundering away next to her... It would be funny in some respects if Boris Johnson didn't occupy such a serious role. You can't blunder around when your foreign secretary making stuff up as you go along. And, and we mentioned a little earlier uh, Syria and the events of the last week. Now, before Iraq... I get the feeling that by this stage, there would have been a real clamour for Britain to go in quite heavily to depose Assad and to have him up in The Hague in front of the International Criminal Court. But post-Iraq, there is a real reticence to get involved in other people's wars, even when you are witnessing acts of appalling brutality. And there are plenty of people in Westminster who've said in the last few days, we need to tread really carefully and there has to be a vote in the Commons first. Now... Theresa May does not need to go to the House of Commons to get permission. She has the power to order military action without doing that. The problem is that vote that David Cameron had five years ago, where Parliament voted against taking action in Syria, and he then went along with that, seems to have created this convention that unless there is an immediate direct threat to the UK, then the government now apparently has to go to MPs and have a day-long debate before the government gets to decide to commit its own armed forces. Now, that's the kind of thing where you need a good, serious credible foreign secretary who can go out and make the case and we have boris johnson yeah that that is a real problem because as you say the way we do politics in this country is haunted uh, by the debacle that, that was iraq we have never got over that and it has meant it has hindered our prime ministers since in terms of taking a, a, a strong and in some cases extremely strong stance on international affairs it has allowed those who don't believe really in any form of military military action to be easily able to take that moral high ground because they can point straight back to 2003 and say, look how we were lied to, look at the mistakes that were made. Put on top of that, a foreign secretary who does seem at times to be making it up as he goes along. The political conviction of such things is weakened, undoubtedly. As we say, five years ago, Parliament voted against acting in Syria, uh, just as when Obama said that using chemical weapons would be a red line, and then when they were used, nothing happened. Now, 
This may well be why they're still being used in Syria, why they're being used at an airport in Malaysia to kill the half-brother of of Kim Jong-un, why they're now being used in Salisbury. It does seem over the last few years that we've moved into a world where you can use chemical weapons without consequences and even attempts to set up just an inquiry into what's happened in Syria this week got blocked at the UN and you start to wonder what the point of an organization like the UN is if all it can do in the wake of people being gassed is to sort of tut a bit and shake your head but not actually do anything. No, and going back to uh, 2013, when Ed Miliband, the then Labour leader, was largely responsible uh, for blocking the prospect of us being involved in any any military action against Syria, I think there are plenty of people who may have gone along with that at the time, still in the Labour parliamentary ranks, who regret it, who now acknowledge that that uh, was a mistake. So there is potential, you could say, that does in fact aid the Prime Minister's position this time around, because there will be those who are wary of making the same mistake again. In terms of the UN, I think it, it, it's right to be concerned about its clout at such times. And the reality is you only have to look across the Atlantic to see who the President of the United States is. Uh, I, he doesn't strike me as a, a cautious man internationally as uh, President Obama was. How relevant are the UN going to be in this? How relevant are the British government going to be in this? Let's be honest as time goes on when President Trump is there sitting in the White House tweeting all manner of threats to Russia only today. If you think about the run-up to the Iraq war, it was actually hugely controversial, the thought that uh, the United States, Britain, would act without the authority of the UN. And now it's just assumed you go to the UN in order for Russia to veto it, which legitimizes you then acting outside of the UN because Russia has vetoed it. And without wanting to sound like one of Donald Trump's neocon hawks, it does actually start to raise a question... If that's all the UN does, what's the point of it? Now, remember how last year Theresa May had that terrible run of luck? I mean, it started with the disastrous election campaign and it kind of ended as she coughed her way through a speech as bits of the stage collapsed around her. Have you ever thought that Jeremy Corbyn might be stumbling into a similar phase? You have to wonder when on just one day this week, the Israeli Labour Party cut off cooperation because of what they said was the failure to act on anti-Semitism. And then Nick Griffin former BNP leader, says he might vote Labour for the first time in his life. The two things about this, Robert, firstly, that is specifically because Griffin thinks that Jeremy Corbyn will block British military action against Syria. Now, their reasons for opposing it are polar opposites, but there there we are. But, you know, politics makes for strange bedfellows and all that. And it's not Jeremy Corbyn's fault if a charmless white supremacist suddenly says, I quite like Jeremy Corbyn, but it is indicative of the kind of time he's having. Indeed, and it's indicative of the, of the fact that uh, Corbyn has been unable to, to address this situation in any forceful, credible manner. This has gone on and on and on. We were talking about this 
you know, a couple of weeks ago and he's, he hasn't been able to get a hold of it. He hasn't been able to look like he's genuinely addressing this terrible issue. It, you know, it, I mean, as, as soon as you think he might get on top of it again, he wades into fresh controversy by meeting a left wing Jewish group that is called, called for Israel to be destroyed. Now, there could be an argument that, oh, oh I'm sorry to his critics. So he's just meeting the wrong sort of Jews, is he? As some people said at the time, the reality is it was just politically stroke arrogant and all naive. Well, meanwhile, one of Jeremy Corbyn's most loyal attack dogs, uh, MP Barry Gardner, had to apologise this week after it emerged that he'd suggested the Good Friday Agreement wasn't really all that big a deal. The timing wasn't great as it emerged just before the 20th anniversary. Um, I didn't think this was terribly well noticed by the news this week, that we hit this anniversary of this incredibly significant moment that we reunited, you know, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Bertie Ahern, George Mitchell, all the leading figures from all the, the, the parties, all the sides in Northern Ireland from 20 years ago. They all, you know, came together again in Belfast. And it kind of didn't get noticed that much. And it just seemed to suggest again that, that people have forgotten just what a big deal this was. It was. And uh, we've mentioned Tony Blair uh, just before, you know, that his reputation being destroyed by Iraq. What I would also say, and I think most people would agree, what was no doubt his biggest political achievement was being involved in a Northern Ireland peace process. Now, you and I are both old enough to remember as kids growing up and bombs going off across cities of England was, was something you just accepted as a, as a reality. It is far too easy to forget just what was the state we were in at that time and possibly people since have just come to take for granted that you know that 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 situation is no longer so dangerous and i think it was right this week that it was uh, it was celebrated and marked in such a fashion it was it was a quite remarkable achievement on all sides at the time because i tell you a few years before no one would have imagined that no one would imagine that was possible, getting those sides together. Blair certainly deserves credit. Sir John Major, the previous prime minister, deserves a huge deal of credit for getting the ball rolling. The way the Americans came in at the time, Mitchell, Bill Clinton himself playing an important role, all deserve all deserve praise for it. And it was, so it was rightly marked uh, this week. And, you know, it's by no means perfect. Stormont's been shut down any number of times. Of course not, yeah. it's, it's been out of action for more than a year. It is just a reminder, as the Brexit talks drag on of, of, of what is at stake when people talk about the risks of a hard border in Northern Ireland I think a lot of people who don't remember what it was like in the 1970s and the 1980s are being rather glib and I think Barry Gardner was being a bit glib about it'll all be fine don't worry about it and it's like actually you don't really understand the forces you're messing with where this is concerned Now, is there anybody who isn't secretly setting up a new political party? What about you, for example? Have you been squirrelling away cash, ready to shatter the mould of British politics? If so, why didn't you tell us? You may remember a couple of episodes back, we spoke to Sandra Kadori, who is one of three founders of Renew, a new centrist anti-Brexit party. Here's a little reminder of what she had to say. We felt that political parties are really failing us at the moment. They're failing to provide leadership, vision, and they've really disconnected themselves from the, the public and the public's needs. We really feel it's time for something new and fresh with a new kind of approach that means we have to go back to the people and find out what fundamentally is wrong with this country. 
there is something wrong with politics, so there will need to be fundamental change. The whole of that interview, by the way, is still online at the uh, website partygamespodcast.com. Now, if reports this week are to be believed, for the last year, people have been working secretly on plans for another new party, though it seems a party that never had any actual plan to launch. Robert, one report even suggested that Tony Blair's son, Ewan, was involved in this because obviously what we really need is a political family dynasty they, they've always gone so well in the states um two things strike me as slightly odd about this i don't see how a party that's funded by multi-millionaires can successfully scream we are breaking the mold of politics and also the fact that this just popped up out of nowhere on the front page of the observer felt a little bit like somebody's trying to smoke them out and force them to actually launch yeah, it is, it's got the distinct whiff of metropolitan uh, dinner party talk, I think, to a degree. As exciting as it might be uh, to imagine that all, all these various figures are, are going to suddenly burst forward with this new mighty centre party, it, it just doesn't quite add up presently. And of course, none of the... Yes, there have been, as as we know, there have been attempts to set up centre parties. I remember one not long ago, I think someone was going to call something centre forward as well, rather catchily. But none of the big guns have really been willing to commit. They skirt around the issue. They talk about a movement, but they don't actually, you don't hear the likes of Nick Clegg or Tony Blair actually being pinned down and saying, yeah, we would support a new party. There's going to be a new party. They don't seem to go that far. I mean, as we heard this week, there was rather excitable talk that one David Miliband, remember him, one time Labour leadership front runner, <laughs> brought down by his own brother. There was talk that he could be the saviour, that he would sail across from his cushy job in New York. I mean, this is getting ridiculous, this idea that, that David Miliband is this prince across yes, the water who's going to sail over the Atlantic and save us all from Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May and lead us off to a land of milk and honey. I get the feeling David Miliband is relatively happy in his new life. He's got an important international job. He's living in New York with his family. I, I, I'm sure he's still interested in what's happening in politics. But this nonsensical idea that somehow, don't worry, lads, David Miliband will save us. No, he won't. No. It's a rather desperate and lost cause on the part of people who haven't got over the fact that he didn't win that Labour leadership contest back in 2010 when the, the old Blairites and old Brownites probably had their last ever big turf war and David Miliband ended up being the, the victim of that. So, no, I mean, I... I think it'd be an exciting development if there was a credible centre party to emerge. I think it'd be a healthy development because just just where the Labour Party is presently and where the Tory party is clearly headed right now due to the Brexit vote, uh, it, it, it would be, I think, good for democracy. You could also argue if there was such an appetite, though, for uh, centre politics, inverted commas, presently, wouldn't the, one, wouldn't the Liberal Democrats be doing rather better? I don't see them surging up the polls all that significantly at the moment. Well, exactly. I mean, we We've talked before about the core point at the heart of all this. There are, it's fair to say, a lot of voters who probably feel they've been cut adrift of a Conservative Party that's swinging to the right, a Labour Party that's swinging to the left. The thing is, it didn't stop those two parties sweeping up 82% of the votes in the general election last year, which is the highest two-party share of the vote since since the 1960s. And we also know that the electoral system makes it hard, if not impossible, for new parties to break through. UKIP got 12% of the votes in 2015 and one seat. And the most obvious centrist comparison with all this stuff from the 
the last week is the SDP. Now, the SDP, in an alliance with the Liberals, got 25% of the vote in the 1983 general election. They very nearly got more votes than Labour did, but they got 3.5% of the seats. It is really, really hard for a new party to achieve success at Westminster. The only conceivable way of doing it will be if you launched with a couple of dozen Labour MPs and a dozen or so Conservatives and half a dozen Lib Dems who all announced on the same day, you know, politics doesn't work anymore, we're coming together for Britain, blah, 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 blah. But that isn't going to happen because they're all too scared to do it. Most politicians are far, far too preoccupied with their own self-preservation to uh, to be part of such a hazardous project. You know, if you're Chukra Muna, for example, right now with uh, decades of political career ahead of you. Right. Yeah. You're not welcoming that Labour Party presently. You're a thousand miles away from them on a number of issues. But are you really going to fall on your sword for the sake of a, a, the outside chance of a new political party working and you attaching your name? to it. I very much doubt it. As, as I say, it certainly wouldn't be exciting if such people dared to do so. But you know, are the are the Europhile Tories really going to do that at that stage at this stage? Are they really going to sort of go back to their constituents in leafy southern suburbs and say, you know what, I'm no longer going to be a Tory. I'm going to join this new centre party. I don't think so. It sounds like we're raining on their parade a bit. One possibly more positive spin on this. I was speaking to one person this week who reminded me the SDP's real achievement wasn't in winning seats. It was the influence it had on other parties. I said, look, you can draw a line from the formation of the SDP in the early 1980s to Tony Blair and New Labour in 1994 to their election victory in 1997. Now, it could be that that's the aim of this movement is to have some sort of influence that drags the other two parties back towards the centre out from the edges of politics. But the same people who are apparently crying out for a viable party of the centre are the same voters who've ignored the Liberal Democrats all these years, who've who've been voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and Theresa May's Conservatives in greater numbers than we've seen in generations. So I hate to sound depressive, but best will in the world, it just isn't going to work. I'm aware that the last few times we've mentioned UKIP, we have always done so while saying it's probably the last time we'll ever mention UKIP. And here, a few weeks later, let's talk about UKIP. Because, of course, UKIP would select as a candidate for election in Peterborough, a man who once announced that people should never, ever visit Peterborough. Now, presumably, Robert, in Hull, their candidate plans to drive around shouting, screw you, Hull, into a megaphone. And in Darlington, their entire strategy hinges on leaflets describing Darlington as a dank, miserable hellhole where hope goes to die. <laughs> Morale in the UKIP ranks, I can only guess, not being a, a UKIP insider, I have to admit that. I imagine morale must be pretty low. It's been a, a torrid and, dare I say, rather embarrassing time for them of late. It's been hard for them to find any sort of voice or role since their very significant uh, part in the whole uh, Brexit vote. UKIP as an entity just looks completely lost. And of course, faces now, I think, a very, very difficult time at this local election. No, the real 
real miracle is that UKIP have managed to find candidates at all. Uh, in next month's local elections, they are fielding more than 500. Uh, that is down, though, by about three quarters on the number they stood in 2014. That's the last time these seats were contested. And that's why we've been forced to talk about them again, because 2014 was UKIP's high watermark. It's the year they came out on top in the European elections. It's the year that they got 17% of the vote in these local elections and now they're down to about three percent in opinion polls so there are an awful lot of votes floating around in search of a new home in may where they go will probably determine who ends up running quite a lot of councils and it's it's been a an elusive vote, hasn't it, the UKIP one? Because there used to be this rather lazy presumption they were all just disenfranchised Tories who were who were sort of who were Eurosceptics, become disillusioned with the likes of David Cameron, and therefore that that they that was their natural home. Should they ever go back anywhere, they would go back to being Tories. Of course, it then became clear that was not the case. There were plenty of working class Labour voters across the Midlands, across the north of England who transferred over to UKIP as well. Same people, of course, who voted, uh, many of them who voted Brexit at the referendum and, and kicked us out of the EU. So it is hard to, to see where they're going to go. My hunch would be it'll be pretty, it'll be pretty split that I think both parties will uh, will benefit from taking a, swallowing up the UKIP votes. But it'd be interesting to see who benefits the most. Well, we'll, uh, we'll look at that in more detail in the next uh, podcast when we'll have a proper look ahead to the local elections and don't you pretend that you're not already excited about it. But we'll leave it there for now. Don't forget, you can always get in touch on Twitter at PartyGamesPod and at PartyGamesPodcast.com. You can hear all the past episodes. I mean, imagine what a weekend you could have. Forget Alan Partridge watching all the Bond films. Imagine the weekend you could have. This is the 86th episode. There are 85 other nuggets of joy for you to sample at the website. I'm just putting it out there. Anyway, for now, thanks very much to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.